0: In healthcare, there are many transformative leaders. The most remarkable leaders don't just dare greatly to drive improvements. They also care greatly. They bring compassion and humanity to the work of leading transformation. This is their podcast. In today's episode, I talk with Regina Holliday, artist, activist, author, and founder of The Walking Gallery of Healthcare. Regina's entree into seeking to transform healthcare began in 2009, when her husband and the father of her two sons, Frederick Allen Holiday II, died from kidney cancer. In the course of 11 weeks of hospitalization in five different facilities, Regina and her family experienced breakdowns in communication and compassion and struggled to gain access to Frederick's medical records, a struggle which impeded efforts at care coordination and continuity. Following Fred's death, Regina painted murals near Washington, D.C., depicting the challenges patients have in getting access to records. She later founded the Walking Gallery of Healthcare, a movement in which she and other artists paint the stories of patients and leaders seeking to transform healthcare on the backs of business jackets. Members of the Walking Gallery commit to wearing their jackets into meetings and conferences where healthcare topics are discussed, making those stories a visible part of the discussion. As of this recording, the Walking Gallery has 50 artists and more than 500 jackets painted. Regina speaks and paints at healthcare events around the country, bringing a powerful patient perspective to spur healthcare transformation. Regina Holliday is a leader who cares greatly.
1: Welcome, Regina. How are you?
0: I am doing great, Liz.
1: I am so glad to hear that. And I'm so excited to talk with you today because our paths have crossed so many times over. Uh, the course of the past five or ten years, um, and I really am a big fan of your work, and I want to make sure that uh, people understand the perspective that you're coming from as a patient and artist and activist. So maybe we could start a little bit with how you got into this this area of advocating for patients to begin with.
2: Sure. So um, I, uh, ten years ago, a little over ten years ago now, um, was a retail sales clerk at a toy store in Washington, D.C., and I had done that for 16 years. It's one of the best toy stores in the country. Um, and then I also was a preschool art teacher, and I also did neighborhood murals. And so I was a mom and a wife, and I was a regular person. Um, and I didn't have a college degree. I, I dropped out and got married and did a path that many, many women have done in this world. Um, and then my husband got cancer. So uh, it sh- just changed my life. So we unfortunately had a horrible experience, a roller coaster of care. We were in five facilities for 12 weeks. Um, and on the final week, my husband came home and he passed away in the home. Part of the roller coaster was not knowing what was happening and finding out what was happening, sort of, not getting access to information, not knowing when, when care was going to happen, when surgery was going to happen not having a realistic picture of my husband's future, which caused a lot of stress for our entire family, um, trying to transfer to get a second opinion, having surgery at that facility, trying to go to rehab when you're in the stage of cancer, not a good idea. <laughs> you know, all these things you start realizing and finding out as you go along. Um, it is really nice if there's someone to help and guide you through that because it's very, very traumatic uh, for everyone. And so... Having had this horrible experience with my husband's care, in real time, I was Facebooking about it. I ended up getting on Twitter to try to meet other people who work in advocacy to try to help my husband Um, and started realizing there's a real problem in our country with healthcare. I mean, seriously wrong. It's very, 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 very wrong. And uh, one of the key aspects of what makes healthcare challenging in this country is lack of access to information. So the patient uh, does not have real-time access to medical record in most facilities around the United States, which means that during a time window where you can make decisions, you don't get a chance to because you don't have that access. So when I had this wake-up call through my husband's journey, I prayed about it a great deal, and you know ask god what can i do to rapidly try to improve healthcare for other people and the answer was to paint really big paintings about it so i painted a very large mural in washington dc in the summer of 2009 and that was when healthcare reform debates began around the affordable care act and um my painting rapidly got picked up by local newspapers, including the Washington Post, and local news stations, and the national news stations, and then I got to do a Senate press conference uh, about the Affordable Care Act, and it was just very important that we do everything we could in that time to try to push the needle forward in better care for everyone. Now, what happened was information access was not as important as at that time was perceived as insurance access, that everybody should be able to get insurance. Um, So at least they could get into the care system. And then there was another piece of legislation being worked on at the same time called HITECH, which the idea with that was maybe we should have electronic medical records throughout the entire country. And so a bunch of us patients really pushed for patient data access within the HITECH legislation. And our core measure did go into the legislation, which was great. But the thing you do find out when you work with legislation is Laws don't matter if you don't enforce them. So here we are almost 10 years after my husband's death and I'm still fighting the exact same fight um, that I've yeah. been fighting for the past 10 years.
1: Yeah, it's 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 frustrating. I know a lot of people have trouble getting access to information. And I think when you and I have talked about this in the past, it, it even runs deeper and I don't want to minimize the access to the nope. EHR, but um, it even runs deeper than that because you've told me about... Um, Uh, part of the delay in the diagnosis was the language that uh, the caregivers were using in in asking Fred about his symptoms, like blood in the urine and that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like and what it means to really be using plain language?
2: Yeah, so so one of the reasons I'm a big advocate for access to information is at least if you have the paper copy of the information, you can Google stuff. (laughs) (laughs) What does this mean? If you were to Google you know, what color is your urine, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that would pop up that I know this now, right, I didn't know this then, and he didn't know this then, and um, sadly, when you ask certain questions to people, if they don't know the intent of the question, their answer can be wrong, right, so, so, like, if you ask my husband, what they asked was, is there blood in your urine, well, he thought that would mean, like, you're peeing blood, it's red, and that's not reality, because there's color theory, I'm an artist, I understand color theory. It means red plus yellow make orange. Your urine is orange. <laughs> You're not clear. There's a concern. So, <laughs> you know, um, so so, but that's the conversation that doesn't happen. It's like a checklist: right. check, 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 check. And the answer is not right. You know, um, and so part of this is, it's it's deeper than plain language. It's the right questions and waiting for the answer. <laughs> so so it's yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we need to, we need to, like, I got very on the way to work this morning. I was listening to, um, uh, then health and humans, not health and human services. HUD secretary talking about the Oreo situation. Pardon? Yes.
1: Um, Yes. And so
2: I was, yes. So it was like, you know, I know a lot of people are making fun of him today. Um, but I'm like, he did like any patient he heard, Oreo from Ario, and he should have had a respectful answer, but he was shut down, <laughs> right. and I, when I was, when I was hearing, I hear that from the patient perspective, I'm like, oh my goodness, you should use jargon to somebody that you know doesn't have a background with that jargon. You know he doesn't, because you know his background, so why would you do that to a person? And that's what happens to patients every single day. is people use jargon or terminology that the folks don't understand, and a lot of them won't even ask the question, you know, like, uh, because you look stupid. Right. <laughs> Here we go. This is a perfect example of looking stupid Now all over the national press. He's stupid. So yeah. patients had that same feeling, like, oh, I'm going to look dumb. And so instead, they, you know, nod yes or not. you know, like, they don't know, but they're not going to ask you because – you know, society teaches people that if you, you screw up then you're a dumb person and
1: Right. And it's already value. vulnerable to be in a healthcare situation um where you're not certain what's going on and you're you're putting your well being to some extent in the hands of another person. So Right um, asking anything that minimizes that vulnerability is, is helpful for patients.
2: Yes. Yes, very much so. So that's where we are sort of today
1: yeah still working on EHR access for patients um although i i think some of it is is getting better and certainly the patient portals from my perspective from what i've seen as a patient um are are getting better um but it's it's so well important. i
2: saw a great tweet just today i saw a tweet oh, from yeah. dave de that was about open notes broadening their study to being um patient participation in the open notes
1: that's excellent and yes. for those who don't know, is also known as epatient Dave, the originator of the phrase "Give me my damn data," <laughs> and and also an advocate for that. So yeah, Open Notes pushing things. I think providers are also starting to recognize that it's not as threatening. Um, that that when patients have access to information, it doesn't necessarily mean a whole pile of uninformed. Um, uh, notes that they need to sift through, but as you're talking about, the, the ability of patients to inform themselves fully.
2: True. And also make choices. So yes. it's one of those that, that information allows for choice making to occur. And that's the the step that's oftentimes leaped over mm-hmm. within a healthcare setting is what does this patient actually want? Not only what's going on with their body, but what's their what's their decision making? What are they wanting? What's their priorities? Um, right. That's the thing from what I read of the tweet this morning. Um, it sounded like what was really exciting was prior to a doctor's appointment, you would get to add data to the EHR about your priorities for that appointment. Which I'm like,
1: yay! <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit um, because you talked about the mural in in your, you know, your description of how you got into this work, um, and you have since done a lot with art and activism, and particularly the Walking Gallery, and I was hoping you would tell people a little bit about what that's about, why it's important, what it looks like.
2: Sure! So back in 2011, I started the Walking Gallery. Uh, It is... It comes out of, first, the image of a patient. So I, I paint about patients a lot. I've painted over 700 paintings about patients. Um, and so there's uh, pictographs that represent things. There's imagery that represent things. We're taught this throughout our entire life. We're taught it through signage. We're taught it through stained glass windows. We're, we're taught constantly that's a symbol for a bathroom, even before you can read the words. You know, So so we learn these things. And the symbol for a patient is a, human being turned backward with a Johnny gown on so you can see their bum. That's the symbol of a patient. That's very disempowering. That's taking everything away from a person, the story of their life, you know, everything, respect, dignity. Um, It's functionally appropriate for the sickest patient to be wearing a Johnny gown. Yes. But design, that's the problem with our model of healthcare. Everything's based on the sickest of us, right? Take a disempowering concept, which is the back Johnny gown open and instead replace that with a business suit jacket which is a symbol of power, and still is a symbol of power, even though we're in a casual world these days, and a lot of people are wearing jackets, if you go into a hall of power, guess what you're going to find? A lot of men wearing business suits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's still there, and so what I did is I took the back of the business suit jacket, or the women's blazer, and started painting the patient's story on the back of those garments, And it was really powerful. And so we had our first gathering in 2011 and there were 56 people in the original walking gallery. There were 13 artists that painted. So it was I and several other artists. The um, art growth, the artists doing this has not grown as fast as people wearing the jackets because we do not charge for the painting. So the painting, though it may take hours and hours and hours of time, is free. Um, The jacket belongs to the person painting is free that's a little edgy in the world of art you know um but it's really important so everyone can join this movement in part in some reason is because there's a lot of poor people right that can't afford paying for giant paintings on people's backs and things like that but also if you're working for state or federal government um if these have value if like you're if there's value to this then they can't be part of it and i wanted everybody to be part of the movement so anyone can join, and it's their story, and it's often um, their patient story or their family member's patient story. But occasionally, it's their role within healthcare in a policy context or as a doctor focused on, um, you know, sleep deprivation within medical students. I mean, it's always a story within healthcare, be it positive or negative, that needs to be told. And at this point, we have over 500 jackets in the walking gallery um over four hundred and twenty members. You know, we we just we keep growing. And we're in sixteen countries around the world. I'm I'm one of the
1: members. And you're one of them. I am one of them. And I love um I love a couple of things. First of all, I love walking into a space where there's otherwise no visible patient presence. Um, and seeing mm-hmm. the jackets and seeing patient stories in a way that that you cannot ignore and that and the other is when I wear my jacket into spaces and it even though I work in healthcare, it's my patient story people come up to me and ask invariably partly sometimes because they've heard of it and they want to know more but sometimes they've never heard of it and so it just mm-hmm. creates this opportunity for dialogue around A, the importance of having patient voices and the fact that they're missing from so many of these discussions. B, the, the um, you know, reducing some of the stigma around telling the patient's story. Um, mine is a mental health story, and, and that it took, it took me a deep breath to say that's what I'm gonna put on my jacket and to share it with every person who comes up and, and talks to me about it. So it really is breaking yep. down so many of those barriers, which I love.
2: Well, I was just in Canada, and we had several new members of the Walking Gallery join, and uh, one of them was, you know, he, he wanted to join, he wanted to tell a story, he'd told a story before, um, but now wearing his jacket, he came up to me after, and he's, like, he's like, this is hard. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> everyone keeps asking me that, I have to say it again and again and again, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's powerful, I and mean, you know, it like, is. it's, it's it, you can't walk away from your story. Like if it's painted on your back you can't walk away. You're stuck <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's like, Yes, this is me. This is me. Yeah, and this would happen this to is me. It's a story that
1: belongs in this space, in a space where decisions right. are being made, where information is being shared. Absolutely.
2: Yep. It's powerful. Um,
1: yeah. So th- so that's a pretty nice segue into you know, overall a lot of what you're trying to do is is change the way that health systems are are working in the way that they're thinking about engaging with patients both in a clinical setting and in a in an advocacy and activism kind of kind of setting. What's rewarding about that work and what's frustrating?
2: It's very hard to move things forward um, it's very hard to get uh people in I work in many many fields within healthcare like patient safety and hospice and the life care. But I, I the work I do Pretty much crosses all the boundaries in healthcare. I often do say that you know one of the best things that could possibly happen is if everybody in the suite, C-suite at a hospital, um, were to work in the gift shop, um, mandatory at least once a month. Oh.
1: <laughs> Why did you say that?
2: Well, because people can get very distanced from the reality of the everyday life of the family caregivers and patient family that come into the facility. Um, I mean, it can be very easy to make it where there's a separation of us versus them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see it happen a lot. And I like to ground people into the reality of everyday life. You know, this is the, the you may think you have a pretty hospital and you may have made it what you think is got great wayfinding and um, beautiful but when you start dealing with people who came to it for the first time today and their dad had a heart attack and they need to get peanuts in the gift shop. Um, you get a realistic view of your hospital mm-hmm. uh, when you start talking to those people because they're frustrated and they couldn't yeah. find things. And, and it, you, and you hear these conversations and, and, there's lots of wayfinding that needs to happen and you become part of that. <laughs> and yeah. I think sometimes what happens when a person becomes in charge Um, There's this distancing factor that occurs between the people in charge and the regular people. Um, And when that happens, I think it can be very dangerous. What can happen is you can get steeped in an institutional philosophy that makes your decisions dangerous and can hurt people. Patients are never the flavor of the week. Engagement is never flavor of the week. This is the core of the mission, right? Right and right. we don't go beyond the core of the mission. It's, it's still core. And you I, need to...
1: Hmm? Sorry, c- finish your thought. Sure.
2: No, you can you can come in.
1: I was gonna say, if, if I put on the hat then of of the executives, and I, and I don't disagree with you that, that there is a disconnect that happens. I think the disconnect sometimes happens because they are juggling um, the complexity of a lot of different priorities. Um, which isn't, which which is a reason, not an excuse. Um, right. But we've also talked in the past about some of the things that health systems sometimes do to try to infuse more patient understanding or patient perspective into some of the work that they do. And and there've been some frustrations even on that front with patient family advisory councils and that sort of thing. So when you look at the efforts that you've been involved with with hospitals and health systems trying to um, infuse patient voice into more of what they do. What do you see, and what are what are the what's the delta between where you see things actually being and what you think is possible?
2: Okay, so still, m- most places I go to, all around the country, and sometimes around the world, um, the patient and family caregiver are still considered almost like a guest visitor um, and not part of the team. So, even that place that has a patient family advisory council, oftentimes they design that role to be very short in nature, like a two-year, right, that they're on the council, and then they're off. There has to be a new batch that come on, and then you lose institutional knowledge because you lost that core group that already understood all this. And so if, what some facilities have done, which is they've now embedded family care conversion patients into every element of the facility, so there isn't a single group or meeting an M&M round or any EMR workflow group, whatever the groups are, guess what you've got on it? A patient and family person (laughs) on every single workflow. Um, The folks that have done that, I think they truly get it. They truly get that the patient and family caregiver can be a wonderful voice in every single element of the hospital um, command chain, every element. Um, if they're part of it the questions that they ask the things they bring to the table will increase the value of every single conversation We have and if okay. we are willing to have them be here in the space representing who they represent nothing else Then we also have a willingness to be completely transparent and honest um, mm-hmm. And it destroys the us-versus-them mentality that is inherent in so many institutional models
1: Absolutely um, They're ch- you know, we've talked about challenges even for the organizations that get it, around you know, if you're going to treat a patient family member like a team member, you have to look at some of the balance of power issues, like who's getting paid in the room and who's not getting paid in the room, what the expenses are, what the times of day are, and how that um, that allows older versus younger versus family caregiving versus not uh, kind of people into into place. So there's a lot of considerations that go into that 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 you've bumped up against, correct?
2: Oh, yes. I mean, this is a major challenge. Oftentimes you're getting an affluent, retired individual to t- join these councils because they have the time and they have the means um, to be able to, you know, drop everything in the middle of the day and go to a health meeting. Um, they have the transportation to get there, you know, that these. And then, of course, you skew your demographic of health. Um, there's ways around this. You know, there's there's many ways around this. Um, but oftentimes they're not utilized. I mean, if you wanna get young parents involved, then you either have to work within a time schedule for them that they have childcare via school, right? Or you have to provide some kind of onsite childcare so that they can be part of this kind of process. If you want people who are economically struggling, you've gotta provide transportation for them. You know, that often you have to provide food too. You know, like they gotta be able to eat. Um, so, so, I know there's a group of people like, well, if folks aren't paid for it, then it's no value at all. And I, and I'm not so sure about that. So I, I run, when I'm not doing all the other things I do, I run a nonprofit thrift store in Grantsville, Maryland. And we have at this point 45 volunteers. Um, and a lot of them would be considered on, you know, the edge of society that help out. Um, and they love it. They love to get to help out. They love to be a contributing member of society in a volunteer way. Um, oftentimes, people who are disabled, for instance, they can't work, but they can volunteer. They can they can sit and do a job. They don't have to physically do a demanding job, right? Um, they can be a smiling, wonderful presence and part of this dialogue. And so, I think we have to meet everyone where they are. In in some cases, where where it allows for a person to participate is create a program that gets them a ride to where you are, get some food to eat, get some fellowship and camaraderie, and you'll have Friends for Life that are part mm-hmm. of this entire system.
1: So that just triggered me uh, a memory of a conversation we, we had a couple years mm-hmm. back about uh, your son, not in a volunteer capacity, but in a care participation capacity. Uh, where it was about his discomfort with blood draws, um, and yes, how yes. and how the organization—I think it was Kaiser—was worked. As yeah, it was a Kaiser, and it worked with you. Can do you do you mind sharing that story?
2: Not a problem. So, so my uh, oldest son has autism, and he really struggled going to care appointments in part because every time he needed a shot, he had to be held down by people. Um, and as he, he got bigger, it was a lot of people. I mean, there'd be like four or five people holding him down to give him a shot. So he got to the point where he really didn't want to go to the doctor. Um, we went to Kaiser, you know, the doctor's like, yeah, we do need to do a shot today, but what would we need to do to make this experience better for you? And he had never been asked that in his entire life.
1: I think that's so important that the, the doctor, you know, Actually, involve him in solving the problem as opposed to simply thinking about holding him down. And if I remember it, the the solution was the blood pressure cuff. That that
2: yes, yes, him. you're right. So so what Freddie's suggestion was, this came from <laughs> him. It was it was like I like it when you put that cuff around my arm. I like how I feel squeezed. If you were to do that, I wouldn't notice the shot.
1: Yeah, brilliant, and nothing yeah. that, <laughs> that that anyone but Freddie would have necessarily thought of, which. No. Um, why it's so and, and I think there's a couple of things here. I mean, one, he's autistic. Second, he was young. Um, and nevertheless, both of those are reasons that sometimes people will discount the input of a particular patient. Uh, but the, yeah. nevertheless, the doctor treated him like the full participant in his care that he was, which I think is just a great story.
2: Yeah, it is a wonderful story. and it And it just shows the difference of tradition- a traditional approach opposed to an inclusive approach mm-hmm. uh where you just work with people and maybe you change your workflow, maybe you change the way you do things in order to make it this experience better for this patient,
1: yeah, well, and it's funny to me because I often hear pushback on that kind of thing of concern that that approach quote unquote takes longer, but I guarantee that that took less time than than the five people's collective time holding Freddie down so.
2: Right, and also the potential for injury, <laughs> right, like you know like why force does to make this more traumatic than it needs to be, and you're talking about long term arc of a life, then you really get into issues, right, where a person becomes massively resistant to ever going to an appointment ever right um so so yeah, I mean, it's just maybe maybe it's longer, but not necessarily
1: <laughs> right right so so we're we're as we're talking about this longer term arc. What is your vision for how healthcare should transform over the next, you know, three, five, ten years?
2: Well, I'm often saying that well first we have to really truly involve telehealth in it. I know there's some push now, finally, in somewhat of the legislature to start making um uh state compacts that would allow for more telehealth providers without doing licensure in every single state, which is what they have to do now. Mm-hmm. Um in many cases, telehealth makes much more sense than going out of your home and seeing a physical doctor. Transportation is really, really problematic as well. <laughs> so so that's a big solution that way. Changing the traditional hub hospital into more of a community hub um, about learning and care and f- fellowship and knowing people in a space, opposed to the traditional model where it's about going there when you're sick um that's talk to me more
1: about what that looks like to you
2: well you know one of those things is hospitals have these amazing spaces but their patient count is going down at least in the non-city hospitals right and so reutilizing your space for more classes and together time for people than what traditionally it's been used for which is very segregated patient rooms with very very few open spaces that people can use together as a community um there's almost no health classes that are like physically based uh like in my area for instance people are constantly looking for space that they could do like a on a curve style class where people can come and exercise. There's so few spaces for that, but what is the hospital but a gigantic space with some open rooms that are underutilized, they're just utilized for board meetings and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's like changing how you use the space, making it where it becomes medical libraries that people actually get to go into and there's a person there or a telehealth person to guide you through research on your disorder. Um, those are all really, really great ways to use facilities. Actually using the cafeteria for a food source because oftentimes your cafeteria food is, is wonderful and relatively affordable and making it where the public see this as a space. Uh, also, when I used to live in Lawrence, Kansas years ago, they used their local hospital as a sick care facility for kids that had to stay home from school so their parents didn't have to lose their jobs. Mm. <laughs> you know, And that was great too because it basically created the space. They realized their PD, pee- Kids ward was underutilized and they had empty beds and they thought, hey, you know, if there's kids who are just sick from school, we could bring them in for the day, um, charge a low daycare rate, and all of a sudden these kids don't have to, their parents don't have to, you know, lose a whole day of work. And you've got to figure out, you know, just like there's all these empty commercial buildings, what's gonna happen to the traditional hospital setting twenty years from now? And what are you doing now? To make your space the community hub that it needs to be to exist then
1: yeah well I like that also because it it fits with the idea of value-based care which by necessity if you're going to be influencing people who are chronically ill whose illnesses are in turn strongly influenced by their behaviors what most of which happen outside of the, the brief moments yep. when they're having an encounter with the care system, that if you are creating a hub that is a greater influence on the community and, and the community lifestyle issues and education and knowledge and, mm-hmm. and social connections, which we know also have a huge impact on health, yep. then you are using the space not just in a way that is an appropriate use of space, but that fits with that.
2: When I speak, a lot of people say, oh, you're talking about the social determinants of health.
1: <laughs> I'm like,
2: yes, I'm using, I'm just not using that giant big phrase. <laughs> um, I know a lot of people on disability. They live in chaotic lives. They're they're on the edge of society. They're um, already sick. There's already something wrong. So the technology, they're, they're using as best they can the technology that exists for them, right? But we still have all these structures to take care of people based in the 20th century using faxes and phones, and the idea that a person actually has a physical address.
1: Yeah.
2: And those are not the reality of so many of the people I help.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So so I go into rooms and try to explain that to people
1: <laughs> all the time. <laughs> to people who have their phones in their pockets. And, and,
2: right. Uh, have a phone and, and, and not a house and a car. And, yeah. so it's not <laughs> and their they reality. They can't understand the other reality. You know? Yeah. Um, Which circles yeah. back to your For, point
1: of, of working in the gift shop and or finding a yeah. to truly immerse yourself in what the community and patient family experience is.
2: Right. And then you find out why, you know, when you're getting your uh patient satisfaction scores back, you know, if you're only mailing them to people's houses, then you're only getting responses from people that are stable. Right. Right. Cuz you made a choice. You made a choice to self-select individuals that would most likely respond well cuz they're stable. Um, you know <laughs> so Yeah. So so anyway <laughs> These yeah. are things that frustrate me on a regular basis. But
1: Well, I'm grateful that you are out there um pushing in a thoughtful and meaningful way against some of these frustrations and um and that we are seeing tweets like like epatient days that suggest that um shifts, albeit slower than we would like, are happening. All right. Well, Regina, great to talk with you. As always, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your art. um, And thank you for continuing to help all of the people you're helping through your thrift shop work, through your advocacy, through your humanity.
2: Well, thank you, Liz, for what you're doing as well.
0: You can find links to Regina Holliday's medical advocacy blog, as well as details about the walking gallery of Healthcare and how to hire Regina as a speaker, at www.vocera.com slash podcast slash Regina holiday. This is Liz Bohm, Executive Strategist for Human-Centered Research at the Experience Innovation Network, part of Vosera. Thank you for caring greatly.